Hello, listeners. I'm David Blakesley, and this is episode 110 of Criterion Reflections, a podcast that's going through the Criterion Collection in chronological order of original release. And uh, it is a new year. It's January 2nd, 2022, so it feels kind of like we're embarking on a a new thing here. (laughs) Uh, But we are still in the middle of season four of this podcast, which is dedicated to Criterion Collection affiliated films of 1972. And for me, it's a bit of a return to form because for the past several episodes, in fact, not just the Criterion Reflections, but all the podcasting I've done, in the last few months, it seems, has been a sort of multi-film conversations. Either it's our best of the year list that we just did on Criterion Cast, where we we had the big crew of, of all of the regulars on the on our website uh, sharing their top three Criterion films of the year, or Criterion physical media releases, I should say, um, which was a great conversation, pretty good uh, get-together for folks like Aaron West, Jill Blake, Josh Hornbeck, Trevor Barrett and I, and then uh, Scott and I, Eric Devins, and Jordan Esso. So it's a kind of an all-star cast <laughs> for Criterion cast folks. Um, but I've also been doing episodes of Inside the Box with Trevor Barrett, where we cover multiple films. And uh, and here, and then also the previous episodes of this podcast talked about the Lone Wolf and Cub series and uh, the films of Jean-Luc Godard in the late 60s, early 70s. So I've been cramming a lot of movies into each episode, it seems, for like the last three or four months, practically. But now I'm just going to focus on one little bitty film. <laughs> this <laughs> happens to be uh, Robert Altman's Images uh, from 1972. And I'll have a little bit more to say about this movie, but let's go ahead and introduce my guest, uh, somebody who hasn't been on the podcast in a while, but it's always a joy to talk to and get back on the show, Brad McDermott. Hello, Brad. Hey, David. Thanks for uh, having me back on this like day after New Year's. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're sort of all in recovery mode of the, uh, you know, the holiday festivities are now officially behind us, but it's still the weekend and I guess we all hit the ground running tomorrow. Tomorrow, morning. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all of us rat racers out there. Uh, so anyway, whenever you're listening to this, and I'm going to try to turn this around and get it out there pretty quick, I hope you've had a safe and enjoyable holiday season. Uh, hope everybody's doing well under the current pandemic and all the craziness yes. and the tension. I mean, Brad and I were talking about it just a few minutes before we hit the record button here. Uh, so I hope you're all prospering and definitely hopes and uh, aspirations for a fulfilling and let's just say plain old better new year as we get this one started absolutely so yeah and you want to fill us in uh, anything that you've been up to as far as uh, you know just little updates in your life uh, you know i like to give our guests a chance to settle in before we get into the the deep dive on the movies but uh, what's been up with brad lately um well i'm um, not really much um mostly because of covid <laughs> um <laughs> 
But I mean, I had a good holiday. Um, managed to see my family, uh, which was really nice because um, I didn't have a Christmas last year, so yeah. it was it was Christmas over Zoom last year, as I'm sure many many listeners were doing the same. Um, so I actually got to see my family in person. So that was really nice. Um, yeah, you, you don't take it for granted like you, maybe we used to, huh? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. exactly. It's been a rough few years, so so it was it was good to have a nice Christmas. Yeah, well, that's good. I'm glad you were able to get that together and, and enjoy that time. So, uh, well, let's go ahead and get into our film then. So, first of all, the the obvious question that some people may have is like, what does Robert Altman's images have to do with the Criterion Collection? Uh, and my answer to that is that you know this podcast tries to cover everything that's Criterion related, and that includes uh, titles that are on the Criterion Channel streaming service, even if they're just a temporary limited release, which is the case here. Uh, they did a Robert Altman bundle. It seems like it was sometime last summer, maybe last spring, mm-hmm. and Images was included um, with with that collection as a 1972 film i dropped it on my list and i've actually like i think maybe is the case with a few at least a few others who communicated as much to me i've owned this blu-ray uh which is released by arrow academy back when they used to have that distinction between arrow video and arrow academy this is their supposedly upper crust type of line (laughs) there (laughs) more art film yeah Art film, yeah, yeah. but I, you know, this interesting is that this film actually could fit into their kind of more mainline horror. I definitely, well. I was actually yeah. surprised it was Arrow Academy because I, I thought it was video just because of, you know it's it's his horror film. Yeah, yeah. So, ha- had you known much about this movie before um, before Arrow released it, or you know, I'm, I, you know, we can just maybe just start talking about where does this fit into Robert Altman's. Uh, filmography uh, we did talk about McCabe and Mrs. Miller mm-hmm. uh, in the previous season uh, with Warren Beatty Julie Christie excellent classic film almost universally revered these days kind of an Altman take on the western genre uh, this could be categorized as Altman's take on the horror genre but it's really came so close to being a lost film but just tell me a little bit about your your familiarity with this title and and uh, we'll get the thing going um, I only know this title from Arrow's release. I wish I had a more interesting backstory to share, but um, I I know kind of this aspect of Altman through Three Women, which is, I think, mm-hmm. um, the film that uh, is spoken of more highly than this film, talked about more than this film. Um, and then he has his uh, earlier film called That Day in the Park, which in the, the three of them are kind of connected as sort of a trilogy. But I I had didn't have any idea about images until Arrow announced it. And I mean, I'm always I'm always interested in in new Altman that I haven't seen before. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of blind bought it. <laughs> Yeah, and I was pretty much in the same place. I think it must have been one of those Barnes & Noble Arrow half-off sales. They, they do them pretty regularly, maybe not with the same notoriety of the Criterion half-off sales, but it seems like a lot of times they're kind of in conjunction with each other. They'll they'll mark down the Criterions and it'll be blasted all over social media. And oh, by the way, our Arrows are 50% off as well. So, And, you know, I'll just say, I'm not as, as diehard of a collector of Arrow as I am with Criterion, but I saw, well, Robert Altman, images, half price, looks interesting. I'll kind of you know, pick it up and shelve it away and I'll get back to it eventually. And I, I certainly saw the year and I said, well, yeah, that might be one worth watching when I get to 72. And 
like I say, thankfully, the Criterion channel did feature this film, at least for a few months. Um, I didn't watch it when it was in that limited run, but it made my list, and now uh, after... Uh, you know, it kind of came up in the queue. It's like, okay, let's dig in and find out what this is all about. And what a fascinating uh, little chapter in, in Altman's illustrious career this film turned out to be. It is. Uh, do you wanna, yeah, do you want to give us just a little overview or kind of lead us into the, the, the conversation about the movie itself? Uh, sure. Well, this film um, Altman had made after... M- it was after Mash or after McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Well, it was after McCabe and McCabe Mrs. And Mrs. Miller. Miller. Yeah, and then um, ahead would be films like Nashville and things that he's uh, the Long Goodbye and things that he's yeah. more known for. Yeah, the Long uh, Goodbye was his follow up to this one, right? Just to put it in order. Yeah. Yep, and and this was before Three Women. So he had said that he watched that he was influenced by Bergman's Persona. And uh, this idea came to him uh, for this film when he was watching uh, like a couple. They were having a fight, I believe. And then as soon as the fight was over, they turned and it was like there were new people. And so this this idea sort of sparked in his head. Um, and this is this is a movie. It's a very small film. There's only about five people in it, I think, five cast members. Um, but it's uh, Susanna York plays... Uh, the lead character and her and her husband, who is Renee Orbigenois, um, for most of the film are in a, a cottage somewhere. It was shot in Ireland, but it's kind of left unknown somewhere in in Great Britain. <laughs> um, and she's kind of having a psychological ex- episode. Um I don't know. Do you want to go from there? <laughs> no, yeah, that's good. I mean, basically, yeah, it is a kind of a character study of a of a mental health breakdown uh, experienced by a woman who's dealing with a lot of different things. Um, for one, she's pregnant and she's also uh, creative. She's a, a children's book author, and so the film kind of starts with this voiceover narration. As you see her kind of going through that process, uh, she's she's writing kind of a work of fantasy in search of unicorns is the name of the yes. story. So you can you can kind of get the idea that she's thinking about mythical, magical characters and this kind of fantasy world, and and she's you know deeply immersing herself in in this uh, as she's developing this story based on her imagination. Right. Uh, but she's also dealing with some some issues about infidelity she's been getting phone calls from some anonymous woman's voice saying your husband's out there cheating on you and she has her own memories as we kind of learn throughout the unfolding of the narrative that she's had some indiscretions of her own maybe she's feeling some you know some guilt maybe she's feeling some confusion maybe this pregnancy is more complicated than uh meets the eye you know and and some of those are just more alluded to but you know you really get the sense and it and to me the power and the beauty of this film is how how her sort of deteriorating psychological health is communicated to the audience it's not through like histrionics and scenery chewing it's 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 i mean there are some overt moments but there's a subtlety uh, to Susanna York's performance that i think is really really the key i mean mm-hmm. there's so many other elements to this film that i think are really 
top-notch, and we'll get into all of that, but I think she really is the central focal point. And for a woman who kind of came up as uh, fetching young eye candy in the British uh, movie scene, I think she shows herself to be a very capable actor here, and, and I, yeah, that's part of kind of where I want to start the focus is on how she portrays this woman who's hearing voices, having visual hallucinations, and not just of strange things. She's seeing men who have you know been part of her life, uh, and particularly a man who she knows died three years ago in a plane crash, uh, a former lover of hers. Uh, she's clearly feeling some kind of mixed, you know, uh, emotions. Um, he shows up though. And, and that scene that you talked about, Brad, where Altman kind of envisioned uh, a woman who's arguing with her husband and then she looks and all of a sudden it's a different man Mm -hmm. and, and just how psych, you know, mentally freaking out that would be, you know, like you're in, in, in a conflict with somebody in particular, and all of a sudden you see a completely different face and it just kind of, you know, sends her, sends her mind reeling. And that's a pretty pivotal early scene after we've had sort of the, the establishment of this, this, this woman who's kind of lost a little bit in her own mental world. Her husband's away. She's getting these strange phone calls. And when he gets home from a late night at the office or whatever he was up to, she's full of suspicions. All the phones are off the hook because she can't handle getting any more of these phone calls. And then they have that encounter where suddenly her husband's face switches to that of another man. And yeah, it it messes with her head. (laughs) And that's the beginning of, I think, sort of, what what Altman's uh, playing with here is that all of these these three men who sort of orbit her life will keep shifting and one will leave and the other will replace them. One will transform into the other and she'll constantly be confused as to where which one is real and which one isn't. And that's uh, that first scene is sort of like setting you up for an entire film that will be full of this. <laughs> yeah, and and I think the technique is just so deftly played because, you know, some of it is, you know, obviously in the editing, but there's also some state, you know, there's some shots where he uses doorways yes. and, and kind of little hidden corners for, you know, the, the husband, Hugh, to walk in, and then it's Renee, the, the ex-lover, the dead man whose face pops up when that door opens, you know, and so yeah, was, there's some... I was just going to say, because you had said... Uh, that Susanna part of part of this disorientation is done through Susanna York's performance and mm-hmm. absolutely and she's so really good at uh, changing a character on a dime um, yeah. in, an, in a sort of plausible way which you know when you find out at the end of the movie why she's doing that it makes even more sense but the other way that Altman does that is um, through through what you just said staging and composition of the doorways he's likes to keep this film as wide as a shot as possible and he's always using frames within frames um to have these men disappear and reappear and all that does is help add to that extra that adds that extra layer of confusion um and disorientation to the film uh for us the audience right and and so it's a very effective portrayal of what it might be like to be suffering from a schizophrenic type of condition mm-hmm. where uh, you know your your whole grip on reality is is very tenuous and um, and the stakes become increasingly high as 
as all of these issues kind of come to the forefront. Because again, there's there's the concern about her husband and his fidelity. She has a as after they kind of make the transition from the apartment in the city, he you know he realizes my wife is stressed out. We've got to kind of get a change of scenery in here. We'll go out to our country place. Uh, so obviously this, this is a couple of some affluence of some means and figures, well, she can just kind of go to the cottage, work on her story, take care of herself, kind of this more laid back atmosphere. But <laughs> it doesn't really go that way. But I think even that, that transition from the apartment life to getting to the cottage is another sort of brilliant kind of messing with our mind. What a great transition that is. Yeah. It shows the characters kind of driving in their vehicle as they are out in the country and these winding roads, big empty landscapes, dramatic skies. Uh, you know, the cinematography, we'll have to go into that in a particular thread there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just really beautiful, rustic, rural imagery, you know, right from the British Isles somewhere. But it's never really... Uh, disclosed where they're at. And I think, you know, Altman had a very specific strategy of wanting to make this kind of almost like a timeless or, you know, unidentifiable setting. Definitely. Uh, but it's a magical place. There's this gorgeous waterfall. M- much yeah. like her uh, child's children's stories. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's a fairyland, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, but, yeah. but but the scene where she's, you know, they, they pull up on the ridge where they're overlooking this, this beautiful cottage in this idyllic setting. There's a big lake or stream or whatever there. Beautiful woods and it seems like it's the only structure within eyesight you know you get a pretty big view you talk about privacy you've, you've certainly got it here uh, and the, but then she sees her vehicle pulling up to the cottage and she sees herself getting out of the car yes and unloading and and it's just and it's so seamless because once we've kind of followed that character the woman who gets out of the car down below she looks up and she sees, you know, that figure up on the ridge, but she's just a minuscule little yep, silhouette very small. there with the sun setting behind her. And it's just so, so fluid and, and so brilliantly executed. I, I really, that's still sort of a, a little spine tingling moment there. And we never return to the perspective of the the woman that's up on the hill, right. the version of her that's up on the hill. What's uh, throughout this film um, I mean, I guess we'll start to get into a little bit of spoilery, but there's a doppelganger. Um, and this doppelganger, the film actually starts w- with the doppelganger. And then it isn't until this transition when we go t- to the cottage with the woman below that she becomes the, the sort of central protagonist of the film. And this woman that's mm-hmm. now up on the ridge, she will become closer. She will get closer and closer and closer to the other this this new woman <laughs> this new version mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. as the film progresses yeah. until until its end yeah yeah and and i will just say you know our, our intention here is to we will get into spoilery detailed conversation but this is a movie with an ending that you probably if you haven't seen it yet you may want to, excuse me. Watch you may want to pause the episode, watch yes. it first, and then come <laughs> back. Um, I think you know Brad and I. We can cut to the bottom line. And say yes, this is a great movie, definitely worth checking out. So uh, that might even be a place right there to sort of hit pause and, and then find it and come back to it later. But if you have seen it or you don't mind about spoilers from here on, you're forewarned. Okay. Um, but yeah, so so now she they're out at the cottage, and and she you know she's here to get away from it all except for the they're they're somewhat of a neighbor he's he's it must be somewhere in the area uh, a kind of a friend of the family so to speak a guy named Marcel he's kind of a big 
kind of oafish lug of a guy, but apparently he's maybe had his way with uh, Catherine, which is the Susanna York character, uh, before because it's 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 almost comical, except it's so aggressive and kind of creepy and gross. Yes, <laughs> that, that is as as soon as the husband. Um, uh, Hugh steps out of the frame, out of the scene. Marcel is just pawing her and and making his moves like he th- expects that she's as hot to try as as he is, which is not the case. But but you get the sense from Catherine uh, that that she's become a bit adept at at masking her mental illness, you mm-hmm. know, because when there's moments i mean she does have her moments where she panics and freaks out and reacts pretty harshly but now that she's kind of settled in and recognizing that these hallucinations are happening more frequently and maybe more vividly she's got a bag of tricks as far as coping mechanisms and ways to kind of ratchet herself down um for the sake of appearances and and keeping things smooth so again like you said brad uh, Susanna York's ability to just kind of modulate her emotions and her composure, uh, she makes it look very easy. But it's this is a really demanding performance, I think, mm-hmm. to, to do it right and, and to avoid the scenery chewing um, or, or the histrionics. And uh, and even, even those little fourth wall moments where she'll just kind of kind of catch a glimpse at, into the camera, which is kind of like we learn that's the cue that something's going on you know things are not right right there right and it's really really brilliant um yes yeah, so like one of the one of the tools actually that she uses is the the storybook itself there's a great montage where uh i can't remember i think renee or Bourgeois, her husband is trying to get her attention and uh altman keeps intercutting it with her in her own head you know talking more about the story more about the story and it's kind of a way of like the film itself trying to uh create all these defense mechanisms and masking for what she's what's what's really happening to her um i really like when you you mentioned the the fourth wall that's another aspect of this film that i I was really hoping we could get into is its relationship to uh filmmaking and us itself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. So her husband, her husband is, is a Hugh, played by Rene Aubergeois. Um, yeah, yeah, is a photographer, and so there's this enormous uh, old-fashioned camera that's in the film throughout, and it creates kind of like a pr- ominous presence that hangs. It's in it's in the house, and he's always taking pictures, and he's uh, some of the s- images he's creating are very like a cult like almost there's deer heads and leaves and guns and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And she and has a range in this kind of symbolic kind of way, like there's right. kind of ominous portent here. Yeah. And, and she has this relationship with this camera that she kind of hates it. And, and, and there's one scene where she actually demonstrates just how much she hates this camera. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. You, you mentioned the, the fourth wall breaking. Um, as the film progresses to the end, I don't want to get too far ahead, but there's a, a scene inside of a car where she is consistently looking directly at us. And mm-hmm. it kind of is, it reminded me of like the ending of Taxi Driver a bit. Um, and that is sort of like, for me, the film's clue uh, as to like that we're in on this as well, that like that our because we're entirely inside her head throughout the entire film, 
Um, we're not given sort of a baseline. Some of these films give you a baseline as to what's real and what isn't. Um, that is not what happens in images. Um, you are not going to really ever know what is real and what isn't. And I think because of those those fourth wall breaking glances at the camera, uh, she knows that Altman knows that it's that is that is your clue that like you know you're part of this as well. Yeah, and 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 I think that's what what takes this to another level beyond just a, sort of a portrayal of. Uh, you know, a woman's struggle with, with mental illness. Uh, it is. It is a pretty brilliant piece of cinematic art because of the way it uses uh, all the artifice, the technology, and just the other elements. I mean, we'll get into the music, we'll get into the cinematography. Uh, yeah, but we focus on the, the performances primarily, the editing, and, and the use of, of uh, you know, camera tricks and techniques to kind of put us all in this kind of state of unease or uncertainty uh, which may have perhaps played a role as to why the film was was so buried uh, even though it got some good reviews and uh, I want to save kind of the the film's fate for more of a final discussion so let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the atmosphere that that Altman creates Uh, we've already mentioned the cinematography so let's just go there Uh, Vilmos Sigmund was uh, at that time still just kind of establishing himself as a as a top level cinematographer but my goodness he really does some fantastic work here and that's Mm -hmm. why this film i think is really worth multiple watches because you know obviously the first time through you're figuring what's going on here and and there's plenty to chew on as far as trying to make sense of it and it's very intriguing it's not confusing for its own sake but it, it is really trying to put you into this questioning of reality and and the reliability of our senses and our perceptions as this woman is experiencing it but then you get into the the set designs and the images you know no pun intended but but the the really powerful compositions and just really exquisite you know photography that you know just the visuals are are very very satisfying and and again contribute quite a bit to this uncanny atmosphere that is being created as the characters go through their motions. I mean, it, it feels like, uh, he is reflecting the world that she is writing about this, um, this childhood story that it's very like Lewis Carroll sounding mm-hmm. of, uh, children's adventures in a sort of fantastic wonderland. And while it, it doesn't go like as bonkers as Alice in Wonderland. The the lush imagery is there. The you know pastoral um, Irish landscape, the um, sheep and the sheep farmers, um, you know farmhouses, old cottages, um, the waterfall, it's just uh, houses yeah. full of stuff. There's just that 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 cottage they have is filled with just so much stuff. A lot of um, strange and almost like pagan uh, kind of ish imagery um, that can you can grab and reference and hang on to if you uh, as symbols for what's going on if if you wish. Yeah, as well as those knives <laughs> hanging yes. over the kitchen and sink. There. Yes, I mean the just knives. these really sinister daggers. I mean, yeah, yeah, you can use them for chopping your vegetables, but boy, oh boy, they seem to have much darker purposes as well. The the other thing is uh, the use of reflections. And 
I mean, it, I guess maybe it's a bit of cliche that films that deal with mental health like to really lean on reflections a lot. Um, Persona, for example. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm not going to knock this film or Persona for doing that because they do it really well, um, especially in uh, Catherine's connection with the young girl in this film, uh, Susanna. Um, when mm-hmm. we first meet Susanna, and is one of my favorite shots in the whole, one of my favorite bits in the whole film is... Um, uh, so Catherine, played by Susanna York, it's confusing the names. I'm sorry, but that's that's. They, the they were playing games because the men have an interchangeable names yes. as well. It's like this little uh, cakewalk or merry-go-round of, of names. Yeah. So um, okay, I'll, I'll, so the protagonist uh, Catherine um, is in the cottage, and uh, I think she's talking to her husband, and they're looking for wine or something. And she opens this cupboard that's, I think it's under the stairs or something. Exactly. It's this little yep. cupboard. And inside this cupboard is, it's like, it's a storeroom full of stuff. And there's a mirror and in, and it's facing her and in, in us, the camera. And inside this mirror is a picture of a little girl uh, or reflection of a little girl. And we have not met this character yet. And it's played so strangely so ominous because it's like who is this little girl and it's like this is a reflection that should be of her isn't it like she opened the door it should be uh, as a as a young girl as right? a, yeah it's her youth right right and then after she closes it and leaves this cupboard returns back to the kitchen and that is when we meet this character marcel and then he has this daughter named susanna and then the daughter becomes a character into this film but I, I love the way that Altman introduces it because right off the bat, before you even meet this character, he is setting up that this this is a, a younger reflection of mm-hmm. of Catherine. And throughout the film, um, he is going to make that illusion uh, frequently that that this girl may not be real. She may just be a reflection of who Catherine was um, as a young as a young girl. Um and it's just such an inspired little bit of cinematography uh, that creates yeah. such a um, creates such a story and a mood um, just through one shot. So, yeah, it was like a, it's, it feels kind of like an offhand gesture, almost mm-hmm. for fun, just to kind of you know screw around with the viewers. But again, it's done with this kind of casual brilliance that I I just enjoy it because you, you can see. Altman, who, uh, you know, at this point was still early in his career, but he had done a lot of directing. He had done a lot of TV. He'd made some pretty, you know, critically acclaimed films. Obviously, MASH. MASH, yeah. A huge moneymaker. I mean, that that's basically what got him the carte blanche to do odd projects like Brewster McCloud and and, uh, and and even McCabe and Mrs. Miller and this one. I mean, uh, to, to Altman's credit, he he did not just go ahead and, you know, jump on the MASH 2 bandwagon or stick with making comedic war pictures. You know, he 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 was trying his hand at lots of different genres here. And uh, and this one, you know, didn't pan out anywhere near the kind of success that he envisioned. He gives some interviews um, that are part of the supplements to this disc. And he really thought that this movie was going to take right off because he, he just felt like there's so many elements here that, that come together. Uh, Susanna York did win the Best Female Actor Award at the Cannes Film Festival in May of 1972. Uh, and so, you know, that's a pretty good portent right there. Susanna York was maybe not a superstar, but she was certainly no 
known and respected, and I think, again, it gives a very compelling performance here. Uh, and then let's talk, you know, uh, Top Shelf Project. I mean, John Williams, again, another legendary name uh, fairly early on in his career, but John Williams, the John Williams, mm-hmm. the Star Wars and E.T. and Indiana Jones and, and you know, was all the Spielberg stuff. Harry Potter. Hot, Harry Potter, right. Yeah. I mean, he's he's done an incredible, you know, Hall of Fame career as a, as a soundtrack uh, composer. Right. Uh, but here he is on this one here, uh, very with a very inspired collaboration with Stomo Yamashita, not nearly as familiar of a household name, but a guy who's pretty well known within that sort of avant-garde of Japanese film music. And his credit is sounds, which is these kind of strange percussive bits. So, <laughs> so Williams composed his soundtrack and then left blank space in there for Yamashita to come in and do this kind of weird clankety, you know, echoey type of stuff. Um, you know, he would throw like bricks into pianos and record them and stuff like that. And but it, but it wasn't just stunt music or or you know cheap effects. There there's a there's a real art and beauty and and the the uh, interaction between the more traditional kind of symphonic. Uh, movie music with these kind of eerie sort of otherworldly sounds again lends itself to that kind of shifting dimensions of reality and perception that are going on and so to me again you've got really top class talent here collaborating even though none of them perhaps had gone on to quite establish the reputations that they would in in subsequent decades Uh, so it's really quite a treat to see all of these people coming together and 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 putting some good creative work together on a project that really kind of un, unjustly sat in mothballs for a very long time. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's not like the the sound of this film is not just a sort of an exercise in you know experimental music. Um, it's re- it's reflective of her mm-hmm. state of mind. Like Williams will. Uh, give you a piece of music that sort of establishes a baseline and then you ma- and then you mashta will interrupt it um, with something that disorients you and that's much like uh, Catherine's mind where she thinks she's existing on one level and then something crashes that 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 idea and she's actually existing on on another level something more horrific something that she didn't want to be on or agree to be on and uh the music reflects those reflects that state all right well now we've talked about this as altman's kind of excursion into the horror genre and probably the only one that really could even come close to deserving the horror label we haven't really gotten into any of the content that would make this movie scary so (laughs) maybe (laughs) having given our spoiler alerts and all of that you know some minutes ago let's get into some of those kind of more gruesome and violent scenes because again well i guess you know mash certainly showed that altman has no (laughs) hesitation to show blood and 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 gore and and that type of thing Uh, but this is in a different context because what ends up happening here is that uh Catherine, uh, you, you talked about taking out her uh, her feelings on the camera. Well, uh, <sighs> she's also on a mission to try to rid herself of these, you know, pesky and, and worse, you know, these, these voices and, and these men who are, you know, emotionally, uh, 
mentally and and sometimes physically taking advantage of her. Uh, so you know there there are some shootings and there are some stabbings that take place, and because they they kind of come out of left field and and hit us kind of at random unexpected moments, it's like whoa, uh, she went there, and, and by extension Altman went there. Uh, yeah, that that was a little bit startling the first time because like I say, I went I went into this pretty blind. I, I maybe did look over the the back cover, but I didn't really think a whole about a, a whole lot. Uh, I wasn't expecting the movie to get quite as you know turned up in terms of the violence and bloodshed as uh, as it turned out to be yeah and I, and I think um there's there's not really any precedent for it in the rest of right. um altman's from filmography f- for him to sort of go there these techniques um were m- more likely associated with um this you know the grindhouse slashers of the era the the italian giallos of the era um, those are sort of that we expect those from from Dario Argento. We don't really expect them from Robert Altman. But again, I think that is I think it's absolutely going in line with with what we've been saying about Altman when he you know r- changing the war movie with Mash and changing the western with McCabe and Mrs. Miller is he also is honoring um, those genres as well, and he mm-hmm. does that here. He is he's giving you. Uh, the horror thrills that you would expect as a fan of the genre, even if he is, again, changing up um, and and drawing new boundaries as to what a horror film can be, um, what can be inside of it, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So the gore's there. The gore's there. (laughs) Yeah, and it's not really a mystery. I guess the, the mystery element is... Are these murders real or not? Because, you know, one of them, well, obviously, you know, one of the, the men she shoots, uh, Renee, is is the dead, the man who died in the plane crash. But she, and and, and it's, it's so fascinating because he kind of taunts her, says, oh, you want to get rid of me? Just kill me. And she's like, kill you mm-hmm. again? You know, I, I, what we see on the screen is that he actually loads a rifle, puts two shells in it, hands it to her, and she ends up blasting him right in the middle of the, the chest there. The camera happens to be behind him, and so in quote-unquote reality, we see the camera blasted to pieces, which apparently, you know, was only damaged to a certain extent because later seen the husband, Renee, or... Uh, Hugh is putting the camera back together, so apparently yes. he must really be attached <laughs> to that particular piece of equipment. But yeah, so so we see one dead man who's killed again. Then we see Marcel, uh, the the kind of oafish neighbor, you know, the, you know, the guy who's been pawing her and all of that. Right. Uh, he, he she comes home after having dropped her husband off because he has to go back into town, and now all of a sudden, you know, the 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 stage is set for for an erotic get together here and certainly marcel must have been tipped off because he's at the place waiting for her and as uh he's getting undressed to to do the deed she plunks him in the middle of the chest with all those (laughs) those knives that we we've seen hanging on the wall you know kind of and i I like that they foreshadowed that because there's one scene earlier um in the bedroom where again he's like pulling that big massive sweater yep. up over his face and then he walks out of view and then her husband replaces him yeah and then and she had a little pair of scissors at again. one point right uh, yeah. yes yes exactly that's right i forgot about the scissors yeah um so yeah great foreshadowing <laughs> yeah yeah and but but and and then these dead bodies these corpses like they linger in the cottage for days you know in terms of the movie time and yet later on there's another scene where uh 
Catherine, the woman, meets up with Susanna, the young daughter, who says her dad hadn't come home last night. And it's like, well, yeah, it's because I killed him, you know. But then mm-hmm. we see Marcel later on. So, again, it's never really settled. But the stakes. Did he really <laughs> live or die? I mean, was the yeah. dead body is... a, another hallucination? And if so, why is it hanging around for so long? Yeah. Yeah, the, these bodies keep disappearing and reappearing, and yeah. you're again no no baseline. You're never given a sense. Like with the first murder with Renee, you can maybe make the association. Okay, she thought she was seeing Renee, but she just shot the camera. Right, and then because his body disappears, and then she kills Marcel, and then Marcel's body disappears, and then she returns to the house, and both of their bodies are sitting there, right, so, with the dried blood again, and everything. So it's not even like yeah. the same condition. They they they've slightly aged if you will you know <laughs> yeah exactly yeah Altman's never never giving you any sort of like again I keep saying this but no no baseline it's like right. you don't really know what's real and what isn't and you never will no but 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 he, yeah, he he's he's playing with the possibility of what film can do by presenting mm-hmm. these images and just kind of juxtaposed order making us question what did we actually see especially you know in a theatrical situation where you don't have a chance to hit the rewind button and and check that scene before we obviously can cheat a little bit now but uh even even admiring the craft of how this is all put together and and the experience that the film conveys i think is just another strong um endorsement a recommendation i want to say yeah check this out if uh, because even when you know it's coming i've I've watched it a couple times now uh, once with the commentary uh, which is another nice little bit of exposition and then there's also another sort of a third or a second commentary it's a limited scene commentary featuring altman himself it's about 35 minutes or so 35 40 minutes of certain scenes where altman will share a few of his insights so this is all the stuff that's on that arrow blu-ray and uh you know certainly one that i want to you know again recommend if if you're an altman fan um this is i i think a very important missing piece like we say we've we've talked about the the talent that's that's involved in this project and just the fact that this film apparently came almost close to being a lost film altogether um let's just wow. yeah yeah and and so Brad let me just ask i don't know if you had a chance to read any of the links I sent, but I, I, I in the show notes, uh, and I do recommend lis- listeners go check it out if you're curious about it. There were a few pan reviews in the, the New York Times and the Village Voice that apparently just doomed this movie. And this is the part that really kind of puzzles me as we kind of sort of start wrapping things up and we could get into the final, final scene as well. Um, but I don't know, what do you think as far as why did this film sort of vanish and fall off the radar as abruptly as it seemed to? Because it was released in the States in December of 72 and went absolutely nowhere. Um, I did have a look at uh, your links and I think yeah. that, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sounding, I'm parroting myself a little bit, but the baseline, um, I think, because well, that's what the negative reviews constantly seem to refer is that this seems like you're never you're never given any sort of anchor to to ground your to to moor yourself in this film. It is constantly just disorienting. He's not interested in telling you what is real, what isn't real, and I think that a lot of critics uh, like really turned against that. They were fine with um, character studies, mental health examinations, but I they think they feel safe in always in wanting to know 
what is real and what isn't real and that kind of their 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 dislike of that i think created some negative reviews mm-hmm. and i also think that these critics are not they're not interested in I mean, at the time, they weren't interested in this genre. They weren't right. interested in the things that he was referencing. Like I had mentioned, um, Grindhouse, Slasher Films, um, uh, Italian Giallo. Mm-hmm. You know, this was a few years before things like uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and, you know, we were just sort of getting into uh, the beginnings of Argento. I think Brava had come, was through this as well. Um, so then, and, and these critics were so used to, um, seeing Altman as sort of like the higher art, right? We talked about MASH, we talked about Cape and Mrs. Miller, um, elevating these genres into higher art forms. Um, and he, and, and that, that's something he did with this, but they, there's such a, uh, such a prejudice against horror that. Yeah. I think they can just lean into that. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a very good observation. Is that uh, he went in a direction that they really weren't looking for him to go. And I I also wonder if there was a little bit of an anti Altman or a kind of a, let's take this guy down a peg attitude. I, 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 one of the reviews in particular, I think it was the New York Times review, just said avoid images like don't support this guy, you know, don't support mm. this movie. And it was like so cold and so blunt. And it's like, yeah, I, I can get that maybe this isn't the kind of movie that you dig, you know, or that, that you know, you feel enthusiastic about. But it almost felt like, like almost like mean-spirited, like let's just shut this thing down or or this guy's getting too big for his britches or something. I, it just, it really struck me that there, were, there was almost like this underlying personal tone uh the reviews being so hostile and and maybe in some ways altman i won't say he, he was ahead of its time because you, you've already talked about persona and then you know polanski's repulsion is another one that's often brought up mm-hmm. and as well as rosemary's baby you know these movies that do you know throw a lot of ambiguity and and kind of supernatural eeriness but i guess even with like rosemary's baby there is an explanation at the end i mean you certainly have to buy into the fantastical premise of the devil's baby and all of that type of thing but there is a resolution this one here i can imagine if you go in with any kind of a chip on your shoulder against altman or maybe just not liking this type of movie uh, you might feel the sense of being played with a little bit here, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, yeah, go ahead, play with me. I, I'm here for it, you know. But because I I I did enjoy that kind of uh, queasy unsettledness, that that sort of slipping into this world where kind of the the interpretation of reality is is really completely up for grabs here. Um, maybe that's something that more of a, a a postmodern viewing audience can appreciate more than certain critical audiences in the early seventies did. Oh, I agree. And I, I absolutely. And I think it kind of makes it more real. Um, I think our knowledge of mental health has changed a great deal since the seventies. And I think that this film and its determination, uh, like it's, it's uh, how determined it is to, again not give you a baseline not explain what is real and what isn't is more in keeping what it's what it's like for the experience of someone who is schizophrenic um and struggling with this is there is no 
there's not going to be any any you know anybody pull behind the curtain and show you what is real and what isn't when when it's inside your head and when this is a uh, something that you are dealing with and struggling with for your entire life um so because of how inconclusive uh this film is by its intent it is actually more uh accurate to someone living with schizophrenia and i don't think uh, reviewers understood that in in the seventies. All, all due respect to people who were in the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I think that that sums it up pretty well. That they kind of put you in this place of discomfort and and lack of clarity, and they just kind of leave you there, <laughs> and they leave mm-hmm. you alone to figure out how to claw your way back to the reality that you've come to know and feel somewhat comfortable in. So yeah, um, let's maybe just talk about the the final concluding scene then uh dun, 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 dun. yes exactly <laughs> so so yeah you, you you mentioned earlier that uh, Catherine and her encounters with the doppelganger they start from that great distance you know this mm-hmm. this ridge that would be a pretty long day's hike to get up there by foot um looking down or looking up upon each other and then at different times they're they're kind of you know reconnecting uh at the waterfall and 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 the Catherine that we've been following throughout the film, she's like, go away, you know, just kind of basically trying to banish this, this, uh, doppelganger. Yeah, this doppelganger, this, mm-hmm. this kind of evil twin, this kind of, um, weird reflection of herself that's been externalized into the outside world where she can look upon herself and literally having an out of body experience. Um, but th- th- those encounters get closer and closer. And then, after after she's already dispatched Marcel and she's already gotten rid of Renee, this is the final ghost that she has to kill in her sort of twisted logic here to get her life back, to reclaim her sanity and to be done with these these demons once and for all. And she ends up running over her doppelganger or kind of pushing her over the cliff with her car uh, as the doppelganger is pounding on the wind saying, let me in, let me in. Why, why, you know, why can't you trust me? Uh, words to that effect. And, uh, but now that the doppelganger has been sent flying into the abyss, uh, she goes back to her apartment and, uh, you know, she's expecting to find her husband there. Um, that she had a does she have a phone call with him um i'm trying to remember that now but she gets back to the apartment the shower is on the apartment is steamy it's like they must have quite a hot water tank in that place but anyways i digress but but she again has one more encounter with her doppelganger uh what did you just think of that whole kind of final twist and conclusion there um i what i like about the final twists is that it it explains her like it explains what's happening to her spoilers she's schizophrenic yeah. she's a schizophrenic woman um and she switches back and forth between these different personas these different voices that take over and um but i what i like about the revelation at the end is that you still don't know what's real right. and um you might think that, oh, the reality is that she ran over her husband and he's the dead body at the bottom of the waterfall, but it might not be. We have seen other dead bodies before in this film um, and they have disappeared and we don't have any reason to believe that this one won't either. So uh, I like that it's, um, it's again, it's a successful 
twist, but it isn't one that uh, sort of ruins the the mystery of the film, right. and also um, it doesn't ruin how like it doesn't reveal what's true and what's not. It it keeps um, the accuracy of what it's like to live with, as a someone who struggles with schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah. There's no Scooby Doo moment. You know, pull off the mask exactly. and sum it all up. But <laughs> I, I, but and really, I, to me, that most compelling moment isn't even so much the the shock reveal of of her husband's dead body at the bottom of the waterfall, but it's 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 really the gesture where she's in the shower. She's talking with her doppelganger. The doppelganger says, no, you didn't kill me, you know. And and she raises her hands up into the water and just lets out this blood-curdling scream. It's like she's just grasping the horror of not just what she's done, but just her condition. It's like she is just so stuck in this world where up is down, down is up, and in is out, and, and there's just no grounding. And and she lifts her hands into the water, into uh, it's like one of these top-down showers, into the spray. There's the scream, and then there's the, the waterfall, and that leads to the revelation of, of, um, of Hugh's body, you know, upside down, bloodied and, and battered from taking this fall. It's just like this... I don't know. There's this angsty. It's a match cut. Yeah, really. It, yeah. It, it was a, Between a the, beautiful. The, yeah, between the water and the waterfall. There. Yeah, a beautiful mm-hmm. composition, but just an anguished moment. Uh, and that's kind of the the final gut punch, as far as the shock is concerned. And then the 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 jigsaw puzzle is is put together by Susanna, the the young girl, the the young version of Catherine who at one point says I'm going to grow up to be exactly like you, you know. Exactly. <laughs> and the and the last piece of the puzzle that's put in is the unicorn to kind of you know just a, a nice little symmetry that brings it all together. Uh, mm-hmm. this this puzzle is is maybe not completed all the way, but uh, the main pieces are in place and now we've got to figure out what it all means so yeah uh yeah a pretty pretty rousing hour and 40 minutes of filmmaking uh that uh you know like i say altman thought he had a hit on his hands the studios thought otherwise and i guess i do want to go back to that just for a second because it feels like like the the movie kind of came and went in like two weeks without much distribution the the uk production company that that put up the the money for the the film didn't seem to do much to support it so again i you know is was that just a testimony to the power of the critics or did this film just not do well with test audiences uh, despite winning the award at can I'm, I'm not really sure what the backstory is on all of that but it just feels like what a shame that this movie was buried but i guess in a sense what a treat and what a delight it is to kind of rediscover, rediscover a lost it, altman yeah. after after all these years i mean i, I think there is something uh to be said about the power of critics uh especially back the then ma- yeah especially back then the tastemakers of the time um had uh i think more of a influence um than they do now just based on how uh, different media was uh, different journalism was um, at the time uh, you know things things were very like New York central and if you were outside of New York it was hard to like get a perspective into the city so like a different perspective if you liked this film but you weren't part of of the you know the Chicago journalisms or the the, the New York journalisms you might not be able to exact get your voice heard whereas nowadays like everyone has an opinion so you know, people are from all over are, are, you know, 
getting opinions on films and a lot of these films are being rediscovered because uh, different people are allowed to to watch them and and give opinions on them yeah, you know, it was much more of an elite fraternity back then, you know. Yes, uh, and now that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, really, uh, now everybody's a podcaster, everybody's a critic, you, you know, and 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 I think we've got better ways of targeting films like this to audiences that could appreciate them. Like you say, Altman, you know, probably was not bopping around the grindhouse circuit. He probably, you know, wasn't a, a, a filmmaker that people who ran those chains uh, were, were looking to provide fresh material but he was certainly aware it seemed like he really was aware of what was going on in the larger cinematic world and decided to try his hand at it so um, but uh, yeah apparently like I say there there were not a whole lot of copies of this even just printed up for distribution because the run was so short uh, and I think there was a period of time where it was considered lost which is like outrageous to think of a of a film of uh, all uh, a directors cal- of that caliber, uh, a film being lost after he'd already made some pretty big blockbusters as well as you know masterwork type of films. So we're all the better off for it. And I, if I haven't made it clear enough already, give this a pretty strong recommendation. Definitely. All right. Well, I think I've made all my main points. Any other final observations, Brad? Before we wrap this one up. Uh, no, um, I mean, I would just say if you liked Three Women, um, you'll probably like this. So uh, I think it's a natural transition into th- sort of that aspect of Altman's career. So, yeah, give this a spin. Excellent. All right. Well, Brad, it's been great having you on the show again. And uh, we will be back. Our next episode is going to be another one of these uh, short-term Criterion Channel titles. It's a film by um, Maurice Pialat. Maurice Pialat was the director, French director, and the film we're going to talk about is We Won't Go Old Together. Uh, that was Pialat's second film. He had also done L'Enfance New or Naked Youth, uh, which was uh, one of the, actually the last DVD-only titles that Criterion released back around 2010, I think it was. Um, and uh, we'll be talking about Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye somewhere down the road here, which was his follow-up to this one. So, Brad, thank you so much again for joining me for this uh, very enjoyable conversation about a film that I think deserves a lot more attention, perhaps, than it's gotten over the years. Oh, thanks for having me, David. This was fun. All right. Well, we'll see you all later, everybody. Thanks for listening in. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.